The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. This evening, um, I want to um, talk about um, some metaphors of, uh, that I think can be helpful in kind of informing us and in helping us gather our attention and our priorities and our aspirations in this practice of mindfulness, of the Dharma in the broad, broadest sense, uh, the, the practice of, of waking up, waking up to the truth, waking up to who we truly are. I want to explore just a little bit the, the, the metaphors of being on a, on a journey, spiritual journey, the metaphor of a, of, of a spiritual path. What does it mean to be on a spiritual path if we, if we identify with that or with those metaphors? And also to look at a very kind of important archetype within um, Buddhist teachings and Buddhist tradition, um, which is a kind of a, an expression of the path, the expression of an open, awakened heart. Um, and that's the archetype of the bodhisattva. That's a kind of traditionally a being who's kind of done the work to wake up themselves, but stays in the realm of, you know, of birth and death until all beings are, are awakened. So it's really a, a, a kind of a, an archetype of intention, of aspiration, of compassion, that I think is a particularly important one in the time that we're living in right now. Um, I feel very strongly myself that this is a, a time in our history that really calls on us to, um, to make our practice really alive in the world. You know, and there are many, many different expressions of how that might manifest. But very much that this practice is not just about kind of our inner, you know, inner work, which is obviously crucial and, and central, but that but that it naturally flows out into engagement and, um, and compassion in, towards the suffering of the world, to help relieve the suffering of the world. And I want to begin with um, a poem that is probably familiar to many of you, but I think it really speaks to a shift that we can um, take in our lives um, that's that's you know can be a quite a profound and important one and the poem is mary oliver's the journey she says one day you finally knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles mend my life each voice cried but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do 
though the wind pried at the, at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to shine through the sheets of cloud, and there was a new voice that you recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And for me, that, that poem really captures that kind of the shift that we can make in our lives when we see that the old ways of doing things aren't serving us and that we hear you know, it's an inner voice that kind of takes us in a new direction. I want to explore that a little bit this evening. Um, But I want to really begin just by asking, what are you doing here tonight? <laughs> what are you doing when, what are we doing when we come to a class like this or another activity like this to meditate, maybe listen to a talk, engage in a particular you know, spiritual practice, mindfulness meditation, insight meditation? Or you do it in your own life, you know, the practice in your own life. For... The vast majority of us here, I think, this wasn't the practice of our, of our birth and our upbringing. You know, it was something that we came to, you know, probably most of us in our adult years. Um, but it's something that, you know, perhaps even if we're here for the first time tonight or the second or, you know, not very early in, in our engagement with these teachings and practices, there's something that speaks to us. There's something that, um, that says to us, you know, this is important to me. I'm going to take time out of my day, out of my week to do this. To, you know, as with um, the poem I shared earlier in the meditation from Martha Postlethwaite, you know, to create a clearing in the dense forest of our lives, to kind of create that space and to just and to explore, you know, what, what's calling for my attention? What's calling for open heart, my open-hearted awareness? Um, what's calling to be, to be let go of, you know, that maybe isn't helping me, isn't serving me? So what is it that we're trying to achieve or to let go of or to cultivate? I think it's helpful to ask that question to step back from the specific practices that we may do regularly or more in intermittently, to reflect on what our intentions and aspirations are, and also how our practice is unfolding, and is it leading us to where we're wishing to go? You know, so to kind of, it can be helpful, I think, to step back in, in, in this way. I think for most of us, there's a combination of two things that, um, that bring us to this practice. And really, I think, to, or, to any authentic spiritual practice. 
And the first is kind of like the way what um, uh, Mary Oliver expresses in that poem, The Journey. We realize that the old way of doing things, maybe our old way of old ways of living, um, is not, isn't working for us or isn't working as well as we hoped it would. That we're not perhaps happy or fulfilled or that doing things in the way we have been is not providing us the happiness that we, that we seek. You know, that sense of one day you finally knew what you had to do. You know, things not, not really working for us. And maybe the other side of the coin is, is the second is the sense of um, a hope or an inkling that there's a greater happiness, peace or freedom in another direction, another way of living, another way of being. And so we embark on, on a journey. So I think in some way, for most of us, when we embark on a spiritual, you know, a journey, a spiritual path, there's some sense of, of um, maybe of things not working or not being fully satisfactory. You know, in, in Buddhist language, the, the word is dukkha. Dukkha, normally translated as suffering, maybe best translated as a, a sense of unsatisfactoriness. Um, so for some, the, the, the former, the, the kind of the sense of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, can be most strong. You know, it can be particularly if somebody, you know, feels there's nowhere else to go. You know, for example, when someone reaches rock bottom and realizes they need to make a, a radical change in their life. For others, life may be going along okay, but there's a sense of there being something more. And then embarking on a journey to find greater peace or greater freedom. And if we look at these impulses to embark on a new direction in our life, wherever it may have happened, and maybe it's not, to some of, it, it's not, for, to some of us it may not be all that clear, you know, that there is a sense of being on a journey or on a specific spiritual path. But I think it's worth reflecting on. These, the, this impulse, perhaps, to embark on a new direction in our life um, is really expressed very much in the central teachings of, of the Buddha about suffering and the end of suffering, of, you know, feeling that things aren't going perhaps the way that we want them to go. Life isn't giving us the happiness or the joy or the freedom or the peace that we're looking for. Or just that sense that there's more. You know, we can think of the, the Buddha's journey. You know, probably for most of us, there'd be some familiarity with the Buddha's, the story of the Buddha's life, of him you know, being a prince or, a, you know, a, a son of a noble family and having really ev everything he could possibly want, all the comforts and luxuries of life and palace for, diff for each season of the year, you know, and all, the, all, of the, all of the things anybody could possibly look for in material terms. But having a sense that there's something missing, that there's more to life than, than this, that even with, you know, palaces and servants and luxuries and comforts, um, it doesn't stop sickness, aging, and death. 
It doesn't stop, stop the sense of unsatisfactoriness. And so there was a yearning. I mean, it's an extraordin extraordinarily powerful story of, of, of that sense of, um, of seriousness and dedication because, you know, Siddhartha, as he was, left the palace, cut off his hair, became a wandering ascetic, you know, and just embarked on a, on a, on a journey full of uncertainty, full of not knowing where this would lead. But with this kind of this sense of this, this a, a kind of a spiritual urgency, I think is, might be a way of putting it. To find if there was, if there is an end to suffering. And as we know, you know, through his efforts and through going down some paths that were more dead ends or maybe they're paths that there was learning from but they didn't provide the ultimate answer that he sat under the tree in what is today Bodhgaya in northern India said I'm going to sit until I see clearly and then you know in that full moon night in May you know some 2500 years ago saw you know saw into the truth about suffering and the end of suffering and that there is an end to suffering and then embarked on uh, 45 years of teaching to help others, you know, find that freedom that he had um, him, himself awakened to, that is the, the, the birthright of, of all, all of us, of all beings, you know, that we all have this, you know, sometimes called the, the Buddha nature, this kind of that, that, that longing for, for freedom within us, you know, even though it may be obscured, you know, and may be, you know, hard to access, that we can, um, that we can, that, that this freedom is available to us. And that's what he taught, and that's what all his teachings really point to. So just if you think of your own life, was there a time that your spiritual journey or a spiritual journey became clear to you. You know, maybe for some there is a point though you could say, okay, this is when it happened. I realized that things weren't working for me or I realized that I really needed to kind of really pay attention to this area of my life. You know, it, just to, and if it's something that you, you know, haven't given thought to, I think it can be a very powerful a very powerful metaphor um, for kind of a sense of, of, of touching into our deepest intentions and our aspirations. I think it's important to reflect on, because if we don't, there's a, a line attributed to Yogi Berra, who said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. <laughs> If you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. So, yeah, if we don't know where we're going, if we don't have a sense of that intention, that aspiration, we will end up someplace else. It probably won't be where we're wanting to go. Um, if we don't know what we want, what our intentions are, our life, life will tend not to move in the direction of greater happiness, of freedom, of peace, but will tend to be maybe a, an unexamined life a more habitual life, maybe one where there's 
you know, a degree of comfort and familiarity, but, but something missing that, you know, that, that um, might otherwise have been possible. I'll share a little bit about my own kind of journey. Um, not that, not in in any sense, not a special, but you know, it was interesting to me, and it has really informed my practice for for many years and some dec- decades now. You know, if I had to kind of put a date on it, I could do so. You know, um, you know, it, it was 30 years ago. Um, and if I had a calendar for 1986, I could probably find the exact date. Um, and it wasn't not to say that what went on before was not relevant, but there was a particular turn in my life that happened at that time. And I share the story just because, you know, it might be of some interest, um, just as one one story of of how, you know, of how our journeys begin and and. Probably every one of us has a unique story. Um, for me, it was I was living on the West Coast, and I was very involved in activism around Central America throughout the 1980s. And you know, I was in very much a kind of that organizing mode where you know, changing the world, and you know, everything depended on you know how much energy and effort you put into um, um, doing things and organizing things and demonstrations and calling Congress and all of those things. Um, and, and I, I wasn't interested in contemplation or religion at all. I tended to think of religion as the opiate of the people. If I thought of Buddhism, it would have been just as kind of navel gazing, you know, if I, but I, but I was uh, visiting the home of my partner's family in Salt Lake City and I just picked up a book it might be a book that's familiar to some of you it was by Alan Watts it was called The Way of Zen and I just started reading this book Zen was a little bit more sexy than Buddhism generally you know it came out you know the countercult you know the, the the 60s you know had a little bit of a cachet and it was somewhat esoteric. It talked about Kensho and Satori and things that, you know, I didn't know well, what, what exactly the, those things mean. But it was also intriguing and it had an effect on me. And I was out one evening and I did, wasn't familiar with where I was, but, you know, I was wanting to get back to where I was staying. And my, my mind was in this really tight place. You know, and it seemed like crucial to, to know, is it this way or is it this way? And it was like, it was like, it was like trying to solve a crossword puzzle or something, you know, a, a, you know, brainstorming. It was like, you know, and, and or, uh, or in, uh, in Zen, there's a, the koan, you know, where you try and solve the, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? You keep working. It felt like that. And there's suddenly just something, let go. There was a letting go that happened. And what with it, came a real sense of a deep release and really a, bit, a huge laugh. It was, although, it was as though you know, I'd, I'd been missing the joke. You know, I hadn't got the joke and suddenly you know, it was like... Um, and, and the voice came to me, inner voice or from somewhere, it said, just walk, just walk. And, and with that just walk was a kind of like a, a, a deep letting go that... Um, and, and for some months after that, I just lived in a, a kind of much more spacious place, a much freer place. Probably 
many of of here maybe on retreat or in other ways had those experiences of some kind of some letting go and there's a sense of of ease of freedom that comes that we're not so kind of knotted up in a ball this was it was an unusual sense of freedom and ease and it was linked to the book that i was reading but not obviously not just a product of reading a book it wasn't like i read the book oh but it was like the book had somehow triggered something in me. And, and, um, and so it was, it, it was clear to me that this was a direction I needed to follow. And the, the externals of my life remained much the same. But something had turned within me that began a period of searching. So that was kind of where my journey or this, this part of the, my life's journey, this spiritual journey really <laughs> happened, um, I could see this as the beginning of this, this spiritual journey. And it was interesting, again, you know, if you, many of you probably had the experience of coming to meditation, either to a class or doing it on your own, and kind of saying to yourself, what am I supposed to be doing? And am I doing it right? Anyone ever ask themselves that? You know, that sense of, you know, what, am I there yet? Am I doing it right? And stuff. And so, for the next few years, I kind of bumbled around. Um, I didn't know where, I, you know, it was a sense of exploration. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have a clear sense of direction. I didn't have a practice. I just had a sense that I needed to follow the breadcrumbs, as it were. You know, read more Buddhism, read more Eastern literature, more mystical poetry. And then it would, then would lead me in the direction that I, 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 I needed to go in. And I didn't re- even realize that meditation was a big deal in Buddhism. I kind of uh, only gradually came to me. But I began to practice sporadically, and, you know, with those questions. Am I doing it right? Where am I going? What am I, what am I, what's the purpose of this? But a, a shift came when I did um, a long retreat, I mean, a longish, you know, a week, seven, eight days uh, retreat up in Massachusetts at Barry. And, you know, if any of you have been on retreat, many of you have, I know, after sitting in silence and with some degree of discomfort and pain for about six or seven days, I realized how much I loved the stillness and the silence and how it touched something deep in me. And I knew that in some essential way I'd come home. I think probably others have felt that, you know, and particularly on retreat where, you know, if you think of, you know, our practice and somewhat as being like, you know, where our life is like, you know, water in a, in a jug w- with mud in, it's all shaken up, you know, and often we can't see through it because we're so, you know, things are so kind of, so shaken up, but if we just let it settle, then the mud settles down to the bottom and the water becomes clear. And going on retreat can be like that, you know, just coming into the stillness and settling and settling. You know, often not easy, but, but, a, but a tremendously fruitful practice. So when I sat the, my first and second and then other retreats, you know, what I experienced was the journey turned into a path. The journey became actually a path. It shifted from being a more general kind of exploration, trying to find the way, to being to a realization that this was the path that I wanted to follow. 
that there was, um, it was something more clearly delineated than a journey. You know, I think of a journey as kind of setting off and kind of going in a general direction. But a path, the nature of a path is that it's been walked by others before us. Um, even though we have to find our own way through our own efforts, through our own diligence and our sincerity and commitment and courage. It's a journey with a, with a defined sense of direction. You know, it goes, the path goes. You know, the Buddha's path from, from suffering to liberation. You know, the path of mindfulness is taught as, by the Buddha as, as a, the direct path to liberation. Just taking any aspect of our experience, any part of our experience, and just paying attention in an open-hearted way to this. You know, tension in the belly, or a strong emotion, or our breath, or uh, many, many other parts of our experience. Just to, to let that be kind of the place we, we bring mindfulness to. And then that in turn leads to um, uh, clear seeing. You know, that's why this is called insight meditation. It leads to um, a seeing into impermanence, that everything changes. It's seeing into selflessness that, you know, all of these are kind of changing energies coming and going. That there, is, there a, is there a solid and permanent self attached to any of it in the body or in the emotions or in the thoughts or in any other part of our experience? And can any of it be held on to? Is any of it reliable? So when we see, when we see when we gain the, those insights into impermanence, it leads to letting go and it leads to freedom. So it's a journey with a direction and an end, normally with cha challenges and obstacles and practices and skills to work with the challenges that arise. And a path calls for our commitment. It calls for us to make effort, make courageous effort to to kind of move along um, the path towards the end of the path. The end of the Buddha's path is freedom from suffering. So just to say a few words about, about the Buddha's teachings and the Buddha's path. The core of the teachings is that true happiness, peace and freedom come from our relationship to our experience, from how we meet the present moment. When we meet the present moment with acceptance, with kindness, with an open heart, we can find freedom in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances, amidst life's 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So the simply bringing kind attention with acceptance to what is arising moment to moment is the doorway the Buddha taught to freedom from suffering. And when we meet our experience with resistance, we suffer. In the Buddha's teachings, the second of the refuges, what we, what we f can find that is actually reliable in this life, the first is 
is taking refuge in the Buddha, in that capacity that we all have to wake up. The second is taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the truth, in reality. Taking refuge in the Dharma is finding our place to stand, our support in reality, in truth, in the way things are. The third, as you may no doubt know, is taking refuge in community or in the Sangha. So taking refuge in the Dharma is, is radical acceptance, deep-rooted acceptance of ourselves and our life as it is here and now. <clears throat> things may be dire, they may be difficult, there may be much that we feel needs to change, but we start from and open to the truth of where we are. <coughs> one elder, <coughs> excuse me, one teacher, a wonderful elder in the Theravadan tradition, Arjun Samedo, <coughs> puts it like this. He says, It's like this. It's like this. You know, this moment is like this. Can we meet this moment? It's like this. Sadness is like this. Craving is like this. Pain is like this. Joy is like this. And we bring the same open-hearted awareness to our world. You know, how many of us have found the times we're living in? You know, the electoral period and the period since then particularly challenging. Anybody? No. I'm sure many of you, have, many of us over recent months have thought, uh, I don't believe this, you know, that, um, and how many of you have found this practice, these teachings and practices to be of help? in working with all that's coming up in, you know, in seeing and experiencing vulnerable communities under attack and individuals and, you know, l beloved rights and freedoms being threatened. Um, the Buddha said, Nothing should be clung to as I or mine. When we cling, we suffer. When we let go of and end clinging, we end suffering. Opening consciously and open-heartedly to life as it is, is the gateway to freedom, as well as the ground for wise action in the world. There's another metaphor that I, I like a lot <coughs> excuse me, that comes, um, that uh, a friend of ours, a teacher in, uh, on, on the West Coast, Philip Moffat, uses as the title of his book. And the metaphor is dancing with life. Dancing with life. His, Philip Moffat's book is uh, Dancing with Life. Um, Buddhist teachings, um, Buddhist insights for finding meaning and joy in the face of suffering. And I think this, you know, for me, this, this metaphor of dancing with life is, is a really powerful metaphor for, for skillful practice. 
Um, to dance with life is to open fluidly to the challenges and difficulties of life, to the joys and the disappointments. To dance with life is not passivity or resignation, but to be fully engaged with life, to love life. But to truly love life, we have to accept how it is. Otherwise, what, what we love is really an image or a memory or an ideal. I think of another kind of a contrasting metaphor for dancing with life. And, and this is something that I think we do a lot of the time. And I call that wrestling with life. Wrestling with life. Maybe that's the name of a new book. <laughs> you know, wrestling with life. Dealing with the dukkha of our life. You know? that I think we, we wrestle with life. We try to control life. We try to force it to be the way we want it to be. And, and when we do that, we suffer. In Buddhist teachings, there are three main ways that we wrestle with life. You know, we wrestle with life by wanting to control it, to cling, to, to want things to, to be the way we want them to be. We want our possessions. We want to have, you know, we want to cling to our, we cling to our views about being right, to our views and opinions. Um, and when we don't get what we want, we suffer. You know, it can be at an extreme level. It's, it turns to addiction or obsession. And even if we do get what we want, the wanting continues because the problem wasn't the thing we wanted, but it was really the energy of wanting. That's what we have to address. And that's what we, the teachings and the practices, you know, uh, provide us skills to address. To go to the roots of the wanting, not to look at just the, the symptoms the thing that we're wanting. The second way we, we wrestle with life is, is through aversion, resisting the way things are, wanting things to be different, wanting this person to change or this situation to change. Um, and when, when, we, when they don't change, when they don't turn the way we want them to be, we suffer. And the third way we resist life, we escape from our experience is through checking out, is through distraction or delusion. Checking out, avoiding our experience. Seeing what we're experiencing as being boring, looking for something more interesting. So when we're feeling sad or anxious or worried, you know, how easy it is to go to our devices, you know, or to, you know, go to a TV show or have another beer. Um, as, as ways of kind of checking out, avoiding what we're feeling. And these, these are all ways of resisting the truth, resisting reality, resisting our experience. So the way we work with them is we turn towards them. That's the core of this practice. There's another way we wrestle with life that's very common in our, our modern world. And that's really through incessant doing. You know, being caught up in constant busyness. You know, in the sense that, you know, with the belief that if we don't keep on doing, then everything will fall apart and terrible things will happen. And this doing is the source of much of our stress and anxiety. So with each of these unwise ways of responding, we're avoiding the present moment. We're avoiding or resisting what is. And it's painful. We feel tight. We feel contracted. We're not at ease. 
We're not in a flowing relationship with life. So it's really helpful just to check in, you know, check in with these questions. Maybe what, um, what we'll do um, is just take a, a few minutes to do a, a short meditation. And I'll, just looking at the time and um, have to move very quickly into some closing remarks. But I'd like to just take a, a few, few moments to go inward exploring this dancing with life and just take a you know a moment to to relax and settle Let's bring kindness to what's present for you what's alive for you right now you might reflect as briefly on what's your deepest wish your deepest aspiration for your life. For some it might be living with freedom or peace or being fully alive or creative in loving relationships. Just see what comes up for you. What is your deepest wish? Imagine yourself living in that way. See if you can touch into a felt sense in the body and the heart and the mind. You might ask, how can these teachings and practices help you move more fully towards this intention, this aspiration. Now just take a moment to reflect, is there something difficult or painful that you're dealing with right now? Maybe in your personal life or work could be the larger political situation or the world situation. Something that feels tight or contracted or unsatisfactory. And notice how you're feeling it in your body. Is there tightness or tension, hardness? How are you feeling it in your emotions? Is there sadness? anger, frustration, or judgment. What are you noticing what's present in your thoughts? They're a rush of thoughts. Are they challenging? Are they relatively at ease? Just bringing a kind attention to whatever is present for you. You might just take a deeper breath in and make space for everything. See if you can invite in an attitude of dancing with whatever you're feeling. Dancing with your life as it is, as it's expressing itself right now.
feelings, sensations, emotions, thoughts? How is it to meet them all with friendliness, with acceptance? How is it to dance with your life as it's unfolding right now? And when you're ready, you can let your eyes open, come back into awareness back into the room. And just in the last couple of minutes of the, of the talk this evening, I want to just shift to how this practice, these practices, these teachings, these skills that we cultivate and develop by bringing awareness, by bringing an open-hearted awareness to, to what's present here and now, how the more we practice and the more we deepen into this kind of abandoning of, where, of what we're clinging to and cultivating, what the Buddha talked about as cultivating the good, cultivating qualities of compassion and loving kindness and joy and equanimity. The more that we do this, the more the sense of separation between ourselves and others, ourselves and the world, kind of tends to fall away. You know, you could, it's possible to see, and maybe some people do see these practices as really being internal practices about, you know, how do I wake up from my suffering and how do I find some freedom in my life or some greater freedom in my life. But I think the more deeply we go into these and cultivate these skills, these teachings, these practices, the more our heart opens to the world, the more loving kindness and compassion become the natural expressions of our heart. There's an old Zen story of a student who comes to visit his dying teacher and asks, her, asks them, what is the fruit of a lifetime's teaching? And the old teacher replies, an appropriate response, an appropriate response. All of the teachings we could say hang on what is an appropriate response? What is a wise and compassionate and an appropriate response to this, whatever this is? You know, this may be our own challenges, our own difficulties in our lives. This can also be America or the world in March 2017. What do these teachings, what do these practices call on me in term, as a response? What response do they ask of, of me? Um, there's a wonderful, wonderful archetype I mentioned in Buddhist uh, teachings of the, the Bodhisattva, the being who, um, who is committed, who commits themselves to the awakening of all beings. And I think that this time in our lives and in, in our history, perhaps more 
than any other time that I can recall that I've been alive is really calling on us, on us to be bodhisattvas, to open our hearts to the suffering of others and the suffering of the world. Whatever expression that might take, you know, it may be very, for some it may be more individual expressions of caring. For others it may be more on the larger kind of social stage. I just want to mention very briefly to finish, Jack Cornfield in his book, The, the Wise Heart, describes three qualities of a bodhisattva or a spiritual warrior. She or he begins by acknowledging the tr and accepting the truth of their situation. Not that it's right or just or moral, but it's true. And then they fa face the truth and they turn towards the difficulties and shine the light of understanding on them. So taking refuge in the truth. You could think of Nelson Mandela in his prison cell on Robin Island. Not saying it's right for you to put me in prison, but saying, this is true. What can I do about this? What can I do that's, that's a wise way of responding? Second, the Bodhisattva works to find peace within herself by engaging in a training or practices to let go of afflictive states, painful states such as anger, greed, and hatred, and develop positive ones like love, compassion, and peace. And third, she envisions actions and a path of liberation for herself, for her community, and for the world, and commits to working for those ends. Jack Cornfield puts it this way. He says, envisioning has enormous power. With our vision and imagination, we can help create the future. Envisioning sets our direction, marshals our resources, makes the unmanifest possible. So I think just to finish that, you know, with, as in Martha Postlethwaite's poem of creating the space in our lives to sit with whatever is arising for us, whatever's alive for us, and then to have insight come from the mystery of things that then sends us out and tells us, can really shows us what is a wise and compassionate response. And so as we leave here this evening, I invite you to think what is, to spend some time reflecting, what is a wise and compassionate way of acting in the world to help alleviate the suffering that is so palpable all around us. It's been here all the time, but it's reaching, I've reached a level of kind of intensity, I think, that's palpable now. And our contribution really makes a difference of each one of us. You know, so the, the bringing together the inner and the outer, which is, you know, inner of our inner practices and the outer, the engagement in the world, which is really at the core, I believe, of the Buddha's teachings and practices and kind of invites that, that reflection. So thank you. I apologize for going a little bit over this evening. Um, I hope there's something that's of help in what I've shared this evening. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you.